Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, David Harrell and Dave Sequeira share insights on dividend stocks in 2022. Amy Arnott and Susan Jabinski give us tips for retirement savings. Christine Benz tells us how to set a retirement withdrawal rate and then discusses what kinds of retirement portfolios can withstand volatility. Let's get started. Here are David Harrell and Dave Sequeira from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm David Harrell, editor of the Morningstar Dividend Investor Newsletter. I'm here with Dave Sequeira, Morningstar's market strategist. Dave, you've been market strategist since 2020, I believe. Can you share a little bit of your background and what you're doing prior to that? Well, of course. So yeah, so as you mentioned, I've been in this role for you know a couple of years now. But prior to that, you know, I've been with Morningstar for about 12 years, and I've had a number of different analytical roles, mostly in the research area, you know, covering both stocks, bonds, you know, specifically mm-hmm. you know corporate bonds. But overall, I'm starting to show my age. You know, I've been in the uh, the finance business for 30 years now, and again, at some point in time in my career, I think I've covered just about you know every security under the sun, whether it's been you know stocks, investment grade bonds, you know high yield. Bonds, levered loans, options. So I think that's given me a pretty good background, you know, for the market strategist role. That's great. So dividends uh, in 2021, dividend payments were certainly back following um, the cuts and suspensions that we saw in 2020. I believe, according to Dow Jones, total dividends paid by the S&P 500 were up. S&P 500 companies were up nearly 70 billion dollars in 2021, as opposed to the drop of more than 40 billion that we saw in 2020. What's your take on dividend trends for 2022? What do you expect to see? Well, I think like everything else, the the key for 2022, a lot of it's just going to be normalization, mm-hmm. whether that's normalization in the markets, whether that's normalization in consumer behavior, you know, normalization as far as our economic outlook. So again, getting back to, you know, dividend payments specifically, what I'm looking for this year is, you know, there's still a few companies out there that I think need to get back to where they were, you know, pre-pandemic mm-hmm. as far as paying out, you know, the percentage of typical earnings in dividends. So there's still a little bit of that left to come. But really what I'd expect this year is more for dividends to grow in line with earnings. Okay. Now, in addition to increasing dollars devoted to dividends last year, we saw a record number of dollars devoted to buybacks or firms repurchasing their own shares. Um, Do you think that trend will continue? And, And what are your general thoughts on capital allocation? And is there any possibility that a proposed tax on buybacks, if implemented, would have any effect on capital allocation decisions? Well, it might be easier to answer that second part of your question first. So, you know, as far as, you know, the Build Back Better bill, you know, whether or not it happens, you know, in 2022, which contains, you know, that language that they may look to have, you know, a 1% charge on buybacks. So I just talked to uh, our D.C. policy analyst recently. You know, we think it's probably under a 50% chance that that ends up getting done, you know, with midterms coming up here. Now, having said that, even if it does get done, we're not necessarily confident that that 1% clause would end up making it through to, you know, the final stages at the end of the day anyways. So with enough caveats there, you know, I guess the quick answer would be is no, I don't think a 1% charge would be enough in order to change management's view as far as how they want to allocate capital, whether it's for dividend payments, share buybacks, or for, you know, other parts of the capital allocation process. 
Now for 2022, let's get back to this normalization theme. Mm -hmm. You know, first I expect management, they're always going to look internally. You know, what kind of capital expenditures, you know, can we do that we can grow our own company organically? And I think that's, you know, what management is always looking for first. Mm -hmm. Second of all, then they're going to say, well, if we don't have great opportunities here internally, you know, what is out there externally? So again, getting back to mergers and acquisitions, you know, what our view is for that this year, I think it's going to be pretty robust. Now, I think management teams first look for smaller bolt-on kind of acquisitions, but I do think that there's still a pretty good demand out there for larger strategic acquisitions for companies to be able to grow their business. Now, after that, now we get back into what is your typical dividend payout ratio. So I would expect most companies will continue to keep paying that same type of ratio that they've paid in the past. From there, you know, when you have excess cash flow, there might still be some companies out there that think they're a little bit over levered, might use that in order to pay back debt. For the most part, I think most of that excess cash flow is going to go back for share buybacks this year. Okay. Okay. Now, um, I believe on January 4th, you wrote a piece from Morningstar.com. And you noted that the equity market overall is somewhat overvalued, mm -hmm. uh, but you believe there was more opportunity in value stocks than growth stocks in 2022. Now, given that many mature dividend-paying companies land in that value column of the Morningstar style box, um, do you think dividend, dividend payers in general uh, should have good relative performance in 2022? Well, and again, it breaks it really down to the individual companies and right. their fundamental performance. So you are correct, you know, coming into this year, we did think that the market, you know, broadly speaking, was about 5% overvalued. You know, the market's actually sold off a little bit here over the past week and a half. So we're probably a little bit closer to fair value. Maybe we're only 2 or 3% overvalued at this point. But yes, we do think that value stocks are going to have good economic tailwinds behind them this year. We do see a lot of, you know, undervalued opportunities for investors, you know, in that space both for, you know, high dividend paying stocks as well as for stocks that don't pay dividends. Okay. Okay. And in that report, uh, you, you wrote about energy, mm -hmm. and that's a sector that had a very strong performance in 2021. And at the beginning of the year, it was actually the most undervalued mm -hmm. sector. Uh, this is also a sector where we see a number of higher yielding dividend payers. So what's your thoughts on the prospects for energy stocks in 2022? Well, we still think they're undervalued, but I have to caution that just based on the market movement already this year, right. you know, the Morningstar Energy Index is up already over 10% this year. Right. So coming into the year, yes, we thought it was the most undervalued sector, probably by about 15% from a broad sector perspective. You know, at this point, it's probably only like around 5% undervalued. Now, having said that, yes, there's a lot of very good, you know, high-quality dividend-paying stocks in the energy sector. And really, this is also a good opportunity to just learn how to use Morningstar tools. So kind of in the energy sector, what I would do is I would go through, you know, pull out using different screening, you know, applications, you know, the energy sector, look for three, four, and five rates, uh, rated stocks. And then also, you know, take out those stocks that might have like very high uncertainty. You know, mm -hmm. companies that maybe they're paying a good dividend today, but maybe more volatile in the future and could be those that you might, you know, consider that they might pull back on their dividends, you know, in a down cycle. Got it. From there, you can rank them, you know, from a, a price to fair value, and then also rank them by dividend. And that helps, I think, give investors, you know, a wide choice of different types of stocks, you know, within the sector that might fit within the constraints of their portfolios. Great. Great. Now, um, 
finally, um, are there any other sectors or individual names you'd want to highlight, for either from a current yield perspective or based on their potential for dividend growth? Sure, there's a number of different ones out there, and I think it's uh, interesting to look for different types of opportunities. So one that I would highlight right now would be AT&T. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I look at AT&T, I think there's actually a hard catalyst there in order to improve you know, shareholder valuation. So a new management team, new CEO, took over in mid-2020, and he wasted no time in order to really go in and put his print on that company. So they've done a number of different corporate actions. Probably the most important, in my view, would be is that they're spinning off their Warner Media subsidiary. And we think that's really going to help that company unlock shareholder value, as well as really be able to refocus that business back on kind of that communications part of the business that they kind of lost that focus a number of years ago. Now, I do have to caution investors that we do think that they're going to cut their dividend. And in mm -hmm. fact, they're probably going to cut their dividend about in half from where it is today. Now, it is one of the highest dividend-paying stocks under our coverage today. Once it gets cut, it'll probably be somewhere close to that 4% range, close to competitor you know, Verizon. Right. But we think that stock's trading at a 27% discount from fair value. And so in my mind, I think it's kind of the best of both worlds where you're still going to get you know, a good, solid dividend payment, but you're also getting an opportunity of buying a stock that you know, we think is undervalued and you know, should accrete over time for long-term investors. Got it. You know, other opportunities that I'm looking at today, you know, like maybe in the consumer defensive sector, you know, I look at like Kellogg and ConAgra. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, both of those stocks are rated four stars. They're both trading at a very you know, similar discount to our fair value estimate, and they pay a very similar you know, dividend yield today. However, for me, I would much rather look at, Con I'm sorry, look at Kellogg mm -hmm. because we do rate Kellogg with having a wide economic moat. And so when I'm looking at how things you know, could play out in the future, you know, while inflation is running hot today, we do think it will start to moderate later this year. But if we're wrong and inflation is more persistent, I'd much rather be invested in those companies with a wide economic moat because those are going to be the companies that have the pricing power to be able to pass through their own cost increases to their own consumers, be able to maintain their margins. And even if the rest of the market is selling off because of inflation, those are the ones I would expect to hold their value. Yeah, and as, and as we saw in 2020, uh, the, the moat does not guarantee a dividend, but I believe at least in that year, the wide moat firms were the least likely to cut or suspend, a, suspend their dividends, whereas your, your no moat firms were the ones that were most likely to have to make a cut or even suspend the dividend. Exactly. Um, Okay, great. Yep. And another one too is, you know, oftentimes, you know, investors will look at utilities almost as like a fixed income substitute. Right. So that would be another sector where, you know, I would highlight, you know, doing some of these different screens where you can look for those companies that we think, you know, are going to be attractive from both a valuation point of view as well as from a dividend point of view. Well, actually, I have one last question, and that is we're certainly experiencing higher inflation these days, and we keep seeing the headlines that the Fed is going to raise short-term interest rates. Um, how might an increase in short-term rates like that affect the prospect of dividend stocks? Well, I guess maybe the first part of the answer there is yes, we are certainly seeing inflation run you know, pretty hot these past couple of months. And in fact, you know, according to our economics team, you know, we're expecting inflation to continue to run hot for a few more months before it starts to moderate. But when you look at you know, the average inflation rate for the full year this year, we're looking at about 3.6%. 
Having said that, you know, it will continue to moderate in the second half well into 2023. So then we're looking for inflation to drop all the way down to 1.4 before going back to more of like a normalized kind of 2.2, 2.3 long-term inflationary run rate. So yes, the Fed is definitely going to be raising rates this year. Market is certainly pricing in, you know, three rate hikes. I think you also need to make sure you put that into context that we are coming from you know, a zero interest rate policy. So even with those three rate hikes this year, we're still only getting to you know, three quarter to a 1% Fed funds rate, mm -hmm. which you know, when you look at a historical long-term chart, the only time we'd ever been there before was during the global financial crisis and never even had a federal funds rate that low in the past. So from my perspective, I don't expect increases in you know, short-term rates really to impact you know, those dividend paying stocks. Got it. Well, thanks for sharing your insight, Dave, and I'm sure we'll be talking again. Great. Thank you. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Amy Arnott from Morningstar Research Services discusses retirement savings with Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Sometimes, despite our best efforts, we aren't able to save as much as we hope for retirement. How can you catch up? Joining me today to discuss some retirement catch-up strategies by life stage is Amy Arnott. Amy is a portfolio strategist with Morningstar. Nice to see you, Amy. Nice to see you, too. So first off, how can investors tell whether their retirement savings are on track? Well, so one kind of rule of thumb you can use is looking at some salary-based benchmarks by age. And Fidelity has published research about this, which I've looked into. And I think these can actually be a pretty decent starting point for seeing if you're on track with your retirement savings. Um, so the guidelines that Fidelity recommends are that you have at least one times uh, worth of savings equivalent to your salary um, by age 30, three times by age 40, uh, six times by age 50, and then up to 10 times by age 67 or retirement age. So if investors do find that, yes, based on my salary and based on my age, I am behind, there are some things that you say investors can do in those cases. Let's start out with somebody who's 30 years old and finds out, yeah, I'm behind. What are some things to think about doing? Sure. So this is actually a pretty common situation for a lot of people, You know, especially if you're in your 20s, you might be just getting started in your career or still paying off student loans from college. Um, but if you're able to start saving for retirement at age 30, um, you can still catch up pretty easily. Um, so um, ideally, you would want to be saving um, roughly 15% of your income for retirement if you can. Um, but even if that seems like too much of a, st a stretch, just getting started with retirement savings and being consistent about it, saving a little bit each year can help you make progress toward um, meeting your retirement savings goal. So let's go up the age band a little bit and let's say you're 40 and you find that at 40, I don't, I'm not really on track with my retirement savings. What are some levers you can pull at that stage? 
Right. So as you can imagine, it gets a little bit harder if you're not starting until midlife around 40. Um, But there are a few different levers you can pull. So one would be saving a higher percentage of your salary. So maybe 18% or so if you can manage that. Another option is maxing out your retirement savings contributions each year to your 401k. And a third option would be um, taking advantage of catch-up contributions after you turn 50, which can also help you kind of close the gap for retirement savings. So let's talk about age 50, you know, playing retirement catch-up, you know, the older you get, and certainly by the age 50 is a little bit more difficult. What can you do if you're 50 and you look and say, oops, I'm behind? Right. So the three previous strategies I mentioned Um, increasing the percentage of salary that you're saving, um, maxing out retirement contributions, and also taking advantage of catch-up savings, which would allow you to contribute up to $27,000 this year if you're age 50 or over, can all help close the gap. But if you're not starting until age 50, you're probably going to have to also um, contribute savings to taxable accounts to help close the gap. And then by age 60, Amy, if you find you have a shortfall, what are your options? Um, Well, again, you know, you can just try to save as much as you can, including in taxable accounts. But if you haven't really saved a significant amount by age 60 and you're planning to retire um, within the next five or 10 years, you're probably going to have to um, look at some other solutions such as maybe delaying retirement, um, continuing to work part-time during retirement, um, seeing if there are ways that you can cut back on your living expenses, such as maybe downsizing to a smaller home. Um, And then another option that we recommend for people who are worried about running out of income during retirement would be possibly purchasing a fixed annuity, which would give you some guaranteed income um, during retirement in exchange for um, giving up a portion of your retirement savings to an insurance company. And Amy, in conclusion, you know, regardless of what age you are and where you are with your retirement savings, you say that there's always something that you can do, right? Right. So, you know, I, I know it can be a bit discouraging, especially if you feel like you're behind on where you should be or where you'd like to be with your retirement savings. Um, but even taking small steps and being consistent over time can make a big difference. Well, Amy, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Sure. Great to be here. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. shares her thoughts on retirement savings. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Baby boomers are retiring in droves, but many of them are no doubt wondering about how much they can safely spend in retirement. Joining me today to discuss the topic is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Nice to see you, Christine. Thanks for being here. Hi, Susan. It's great to see you. So, Christine, you say that it may be counterintuitive, but the starting point to actually figuring out what your portfolio withdrawal rate should be actually doesn't start with withdrawal rates or even your portfolio. Let's delve into that. 
That's right. The name of the game is to see if you can reduce the demands you'll be placing on your portfolio in retirement. So you want to start by looking at what you expect your, your expenses will be like in retirement and how they might change over your retirement years. And then you want to take a look at all of the non-portfolio sources of income that you might be able to draw upon. So for a lot of people, that's social security. For some people, that's a pension. Some people may have some sort of an annuity that is providing them with ongoing cash flows or rental properties or even working income. So you want to tally up all of those non-portfolio sources of income. And ideally, you can find some sort of a match between your non-discretionary expenses, your fixed expenses, and non-portfolio sources. And then that'll give you a lot more wiggle room and ability to be flexible when it comes to your actual portfolio withdrawals. So then what's the next step in the process? So the next step is to look at the amount that you will need to spend from your portfolio. And you want to take a look at whether that is sustainable over your time horizon. So a lot of people may be familiar with what's called the 4% guideline. That means that your year one withdrawal is 4% or less of your total portfolio balance in the first year of retirement. We recently did some research at Morningstar where we actually looked at whether starting withdrawals because the near-term market environment is likely to be constrained, we looked at whether starting withdrawals should in fact be lower. And we concluded that for people with balanced portfolios and a 30-year time horizon who want to have a 90% certainty of not running out of money, we argued that they should set their withdrawal rate even lower at 3.3%. So then let's talk a little bit about um, time horizon and, and what role that plays here. You know, for people who say, think that they might live longer than 30 years and have that long of a retirement versus those investors who maybe, you know, don't expect to have a retirement that would span as long as three decades. Yeah, it's such an important dimension of this, Susan. So I would say for young retirees, so for people who think that they might be retired for 40 years, for example, they'd want to set the bar even lower. So we did uh, look at different time horizons within, in our research. We concluded that people who have, say, a 40-year time horizon should actually target less than 3%, so in the realm of the high 2% percentage it, percent, uh, initially in retirement. On the other hand, people who have shorter time horizons, so maybe you are someone who's 75 and you're just now thinking about what is a sustainable withdrawal rate. Well, we found that people with shorter time horizons, shorter life expectancies can take more. And it's all quite intuitive, but we, ex we found that people who have a 20-year time horizon could take close to 5% initially. So now one logical response to this might be that you know, okay, well, what if I increase my equity exposure, um, given that stocks have historically outperformed bonds over very long periods of time? Would that give an investor any lift in their portfolio withdrawal rate if they would, in fact, steer, you know, a little bit more towards equities? It sure seems like it ought to, because we have historically seen equities have much higher returns than bonds. The problem is, is that a person with a really equity heavy portfolio does face higher sequence of return risk. And so the risk is that someone embarks on retirement with a very heavy equity allocation 
and then encounters a bad equity market right out of the box. That's sort of the worst case scenario. So while increasing equity allocations does have the potential to enlarge lifetime withdrawals, it also introduces more uncertainty than most retirees would find desirable. So unfortunately, jacking up equity exposure really isn't a panacea. So Christine, this 3.3 number that you cited uh, relates to a system of fixed real withdrawals. Um, So what does that mean? And are there other alternatives that investors can be thinking about that might allow them to pursue a higher withdrawal rate in retirement? You're right. It's a very specific system of thinking about in retirement withdrawals. It basically means that someone is seeking a high level of certainty in terms of his or her cash flows in retirement. So to use that 3.3% number, let's say someone has a million dollar portfolio, that would mean that they could take 33,000 of that portfolio in year one, and then they would just inflation adjust that dollar amount every year thereafter. In reality, we know that a lot of retirees don't necessarily spend that way. We know that spending is often pretty variable in retiree households. And we also know that oftentimes it does tend to trend down a little bit in the middle years and even into the later years of retirement. And then it may elevate a little bit in the very late years of retirement for uninsured healthcare expenses. So for someone who does not need a real uh, certain cash flow, I would say that they absolutely ought to experiment with some of the more flexible systems. And the beauty of having a more flexible withdrawal system in retirement is that you're able to tether your withdrawals to what's actually going on in your portfolio. So in a bad equity environment, you would take less. In a better environment, in a year like 2020 or 2021, when the market's really good, you can give yourself a raise. So for people who are willing to be flexible, we found that starting withdrawals could be higher and lifetime withdrawals were also higher. So it's something to explore, certainly. So of the flexible strategies that a retiree might consider pursuing, are there certain strategies that you prefer over others for for most investors? There are a range of these flexible strategies. People can read the details in our paper. One really simple tweak to that fixed real withdrawal strategy would simply be to forego inflation adjustments in years after your portfolio has had a losing year. So that's a simple adjustment. My view is that it's a pretty livable adjustment that does uh, elevate the starting withdrawal amount that would be sustainable and also helps lift lifetime withdrawals a little bit. Another strategy that we explored was pioneered by financial planner Jonathan Guyton and William Klinger, who's a computer scientist. That strategy is a little bit more complex, but that is a strategy that uh, because it does require the uh, retiree to make ongoing course corrections, it's, it's really quite efficient. It leads the retiree to consume his or her portfolio during the lifetime. And for retirees who do have that desire to kind of maximize their quality of life during retirement, that's a strategy that I would urge people to explore. It's called the guardrail strategy. And then lastly, Christine, how often should retirees revisit their withdrawal strategies, their withdrawal rates? 
I don't think you need to overdo it. I think doing a good once annual check-in should be plenty. And as part of that check-in, you can do sort of a hope overall portfolio checkup. So you can check your cash balance to make sure that you have enough reserves on hand for the next couple of years. You can do a little bit of tax management. If you're someone who's subject to RMDs, check out uh, whether you're meeting your RMDs and, and spend some time on portfolio maintenance. But I think a good once annual review is plenty for this. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today to discuss this important topic because none of us wants to run out of money in retirement. That's right, Susan. Thank you so much. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. And lastly, Christine Benz shares her insights on retirement portfolios and market volatility. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. The markets have gotten off to a jittery start so far in 2022, and some investors may be wondering whether their portfolios are positioned appropriately if volatility persists. Joining me today to discuss the topic is Christine Benz. Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Nice to see you, Christine. Thanks for being here. Susan, it's great to see you. So if someone is trying to assess whether their portfolio can withstand volatility, what's the starting point? The starting point is really to do a little bit of a self-assessment. So think about what your goals are and what your proximity is to them. And that'll help you determine how much risk you want to have in your portfolio. So if you're someone who is many years from retirement, you probably don't have to worry too much about risk in your portfolio. You should have all of the equity risk that you can handle. But if you're someone who has goals that are closer at hand, whether it's your own retirement or a home down payment or some other shorter term goal, that's where you need to be mindful about right-sizing the risk that you're taking in that portion of the portfolio. So let's say you've, you've done the self-assessment. What's the first step then when it comes to actually assessing your portfolio and whether it's appropriately positioned? Well, the first step is to take a look at your asset allocation because that'll be the biggest determinant of how your portfolio behaves. I like our x-ray functionality for getting a read on asset allocation because it really does delve into holdings that you might have in your portfolio. If you have mutual funds, for example, it digs into what sorts of exposures they have. So do that process of assessing your asset allocation and then you can think about the risk level in the portfolio. My bias is that many investors have gotten very comfortable with equity exposure. They've had a great experience in the stock market over the past 12 plus years. And so they're comfortable taking equity risk. The problem is that they might be closer to needing their money and they might have too much risk, too much equity exposure in their portfolios, given that proximity to the spend down phase. So spend some time assessing the appropriateness there. My view is that if investors have a time horizon of like eight or 10 years when they'll start drawing upon their portfolio, they shouldn't have that portion of their portfolio in stocks. Some of their portfolio might be in stocks, but the portfolio that is set aside for near-term spending should not be in stocks. It should be in cash or bonds perhaps. Let's talk a little bit about bonds. Um, you know, the bond, bonds have gotten rattled a little bit recently as well. So investors might be a little bit nervous about them. So how should 
investors be thinking about sort of that bond sleeve in their portfolio today? Um, should they, how do they figure out how much they should actually hold in bonds versus maybe how much they should be holding in really stable assets like cash? It's a tough question, Susan, and you're absolutely right that some of the volatility in the market has been in bonds. And so I think investors do want to remember why they might hold bonds in their portfolio. The key reason is not return on principle. You won't get much in yield these days. It's return of principle. And over periods of two years or more bonds, high quality, short and intermediate term bonds have been enormously reliable. But I do think that it's worth thinking about the interest rate sensitivity of the bond holdings you might have in your portfolio. I've often referenced what is called kind of a duration stress test where you're finding the duration of a bond fund in your portfolio and you're subtracting out its yield because you get the yield. And the amount that's left over is roughly the amount that you might see that fund lose in a one-year period in which interest rates went up by one percentage point. A big jump up in interest rates, but nonetheless, something to kind of run your holdings through. I think that if investors run their bond holdings through this math, they're likely to come around to the thought that, yes, I might lose a little bit of money in my bond fund, but it's not going to be catastrophic. It'll be nothing like what equities have the potential to use and to lose in a really bad bear market. So let's talk a little bit specifically about the equity portion of, of someone's portfolio. Are there strategies that investors should be thinking about to reduce the risk specifically in that stock portion of their portfolio? I think the key thing that you're looking for is diversification within your equity holdings. So you want that style box diversification. You don't want over-concentration in individual stocks or in sectors. So that's the key way to help mitigate risk. We've had a long-running rally in large growth stocks. They've been sort of at the epicenter of recent market volatility, but over the past three and five-year periods, they have way outperformed value. If investors haven't taken a look at addressing their style box exposure, I think that's a good place to look today. And then people who are, especially people who are older and drawing from their portfolios, they might look at certain strategies, think about emphasizing, say, dividend growth stocks as a portion of their portfolios because they do tend to have a bit lower volatility than the broad market. So that gives them a way to participate in the equity market gains, but with slightly lower levels of volatility. So there are things you can do around the margins as well. And then, Christine, what about some other asset classes or alternative investments that maybe are meant to take the edge off when both stocks and bonds um, aren't doing very well? What do you think of those? Yeah, you know, alternatives haven't had a great run and arguably they just haven't had a great environment to shine because we have had such strong gains from traditional assets. That's not really when you would expect to see alternative assets perform well. But I do think that most investors, if they want to keep their portfolios pretty plain vanilla and pretty low cost, they'll do fine as long as they mind the time horizon for their portfolio's allocations. They probably don't need 
a dedicated allocation to alternative assets. The products have tended to be somewhat high cost and at the end of the day have tended to deliver a risk reward profile kind of between stocks and bonds. So I don't see them as must have categories for investors, but for investors who want to maybe maintain a small allocation to an alternatives fund, it's probably not a disaster either if it gives them peace of mind and gives them a sense of comfort with their portfolios. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for your tips for how to sort of think about volatility, whether it's short-term or longer-term in your portfolio. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.